Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Our psalm this morning is the 63rd psalm, so if you'll be finding that, we will be looking at a psalm of the soul. You know, Jesus taught us the incomparable worth of the soul when he asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? On another occasion, Jesus said, do not fear those who can merely kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the soul. In other words, nothing compares to the value of the soul. Nothing is more important than your soul and mine being right with God. So what is the soul? It's one of those words sometimes that we hear. We sang it just a few moments ago. And yet sometimes we really don't pause to consider what it means when we use the word soul. Some people divide humans into a threefold being, body, soul, and spirit. Others are more leery with these kinds of divisions because they have been abused in the past. Plus, I don't think the New Testament really makes a sharp distinction between spirit and soul. So without getting technical, I'm sure you can find more technical definitions, but I'm simply going to say that the soul is the comprehensive term used to refer to our total being, our self. Or to, to put it more succinctly, our spiritual self. So the soul is virtually synonymous with your spiritual life and mind. And so we regard it as the most important aspect of our life, at least in theory. But it ought to be in practice. Now, Psalm 63 is another psalm of David. This time, the setting is in the Judean wilderness while he's fleeing from his enemies. And since we cannot travel, I've brought the Judean wilderness to us this morning. So here is a picture of the Judean wilderness. And you can see from that picture that there's not much there. It is brown, dry, and dusty. It is a desert, a wasteland. And this is where David is when he is fleeing from his enemies and writing this psalm. This particular picture is taking not too very far from Jerusalem. Now, there are two occasions in David's life where this describes him. That's, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Where there are two separate incidences where you are in the wilderness fleeing from your enemies. And so we cannot be totally certain which of these is the background. The first is when he is fleeing from Saul. In fact, we looked at that as our context in the first psalm we dealt with in this particular series. And then the second is fleeing from his son Absalom. Now, I think that's the case here because if you go down to verse 11, we'll read it in a moment, you'll see there that David calls himself the king. He does not use that term of himself prior to actually becoming king. And certainly when he is fleeing from Saul, he is not the king, Saul is. So I think it is this second setting that is the context behind our psalm. David is fleeing from the rebellion, from the betrayal of his son Absalom. 
Now you can find this story this afternoon in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. Absalom had defended his sister. She had been abused by another and he had come to her defense and killed those who were responsible. And as a result, he had to flee from Jerusalem. After some time had elapsed, Joab convinced David to allow Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. And so David did allow that. However, he did not allow Absalom to be in his presence. And after a few years of this, Absalom, believing that he has been mistreated by his father, he begins to plot against David. He spends four years winning the hearts of the people, deciding their cases, ruling in their favor at the city gates. And then after these four years, he sets up a rival kingdom in the nearby city of Hebron. David, being caught off guard, fears for his life and flees from Jerusalem. Absalom should have gone out in pursuit of David, but he did not. God used the prophets to give Absalom some bad advice, and so he did not pursue David, thus allowing David to regroup and get himself back together. And eventually David comes and defeats Absalom and returns to Jerusalem. But our psalm is written during this trying time, a time when David's enemy was his own son a betrayal within his own family, which is much, much worse than doing battle with an enemy nation. And we're going to see in this psalm that while he's in this Judean wilderness, David is, of course, separated from the worship of God in the tabernacle, and he longs to return to that time. One commentator has said there may be other songs that equal this outpouring of devotion, but there are few, if any, that surpass it. John Christotoma of Constantinople, an early church father, said, The spirit and the soul of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into this psalm and its opening declaration. What he's saying there is you can get a gist of the entire Psalter by looking at this one psalm. So look with me at Psalm 63, a psalm of the soul. David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now this psalm is not as clear as some of the others as far as the way it should be divided up. 
And so there are multiple ways that you can structure this particular psalm. But what I'm going to do is focus on the three uses of the word soul in this psalm. And so the first use tells us that David has a seeking soul. The first verse is seen as an introduction, showing the heart and devotion of David. In fact, someone has said it is one of the greatest lines in the Psalter expressing the heart of true religion. You want to know what the heart of true religion is all about? Then just look at verse 1. David says, oh God. That is a serious phrase. That is not a slogan to be used in vain. David is crying out with urgency because his circumstances are dire. Remember, this is at a time in his life when he does not know what the future holds and he may be about to lose everything. He may be about to lose his kingdom, his reputation, his family, and yes, even his own life. And if we have the context correct, David would have made the connection between what he's going through now and his own sins. You may remember we started in Psalm 32. That is the Psalm of Confession, where David confesses, and uh, actually Psalm 51 is the Psalm of Confession, but Psalm 32 is when he says, because you've forgiven me, I'm going to teach others. And both of those have the context of the well-known sin of David with Bathsheba, where he sees her, he is tempted by her, he gives into that sin, he has her husband killed on the battlefield as a result, and then he takes her to be his wife. And then Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him and says, you are the man. And as part of that confrontation, David, uh, Nathan, speaking for God, says, the sword shall never depart from your, your house, and that God is going to raise up evil against David from within his own house. David would have been sitting out in that wasteland, perhaps on a cool, sleepless night, thinking about his past sins and understanding that while God had forgiven him of his sins, the consequences remain, and those consequences are the rebellion and betrayal of Absalom, his son. And so you can just imagine him thinking back, if only I had not fallen prey to temptation. Perhaps the agony that he's going through in his mind is worse than the elements or the enemies from which he flees. But again, we must remember that his sins have been forgiven because he has a relationship with God. And so it is not just, oh God, but it's personal. Oh God, you are my God. He is acknowledging that he has a personal relationship with God. This is not an impersonal deity that he is pleading with. This is the God with whom he has a relationship. And as such, he is sure that God is his God. Because of this relationship he enjoys, yes, even in spite of his past sins, perhaps those past sins making his present relationship with God even sweeter because as we've seen, he can rejoice in forgiveness. And that is why in Christianity we talk about having a personal relationship with God. It is not just about knowing some facts about God, though certainly we must know that. It is about having a personal and intimate relationship with him. And because this is personal, there is an intense desire or devotion. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I will seek you. Some translations call that, uh, translate that early. That's what the King James does. 
It is because that word comes from the word from which we get the word dawn. So it is possible that David is saying once again that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I'm going to do is seek you. Or it is possible that it's talking about the method in which he seeks God. That is earnestly. The fact of the matter is both of those things are appropriate. We are to seek God urgently and earnestly, and we are to do it the first time when we awake in the morning. And then, of course, as we saw in a previous psalm, it is good to do it again at night and throughout the day. You know, I've discovered that there are basically three types of people within the church who profess faith in Christ. Now, there's, there's others who do not profess faith. They're visitors or they're just not sure yet. But there are three types of people in the church who have made a profession of faith in Christ. One is what I might call the cultural Christian. That is, they are part of a church and they have made a profession of faith in Christ because it is culturally appropriate to do that. This kind of Christian is disappearing because it is no longer as culturally appropriate as it once was. For example, years ago, if you were going to sell insurance, you probably needed to join a church in the South because that's how you made connections with people and that is how your business would improve. But no longer is that the case. So cultural Christianity is sort of dying out. The second kind of Christian within the church is what I'm calling a casual Christian. That is, they do come to church, they're involved in the ministries and the life of the church, but they're doing so in a casual manner. They're not totally following God, they're following God at a distance, hoping that they're going to get some blessings as a result. And then the third category are those who are fully following Christ. They are devoted. They are what we might call a committed Christian. And that is the kind we see here in the life of David. That's what verse 1 is describing. The Christian who is not casual about his or her relationship with the Lord, but the person who is committed and therefore is earnestly and eagerly seeking the Lord. Now, granted, there are seasons in our lives, which means there are times when we might move back and forth between the second and third category. There are times when we are committed, and there are times when we are more casual. But the, the jest of our life as followers of Christ ought to be that we earnestly seek the Lord. We are committed believers. Now, how do we know if that describes us? How do we know if I'm fully following God? Well, there is some sense in which that I would say we probably do know. We just may not want to be honest with ourselves. But I'm going to give you some objective standards as well. Not that we check these things off, but I'm simply saying here are some things that ought to be evident in our lives if we are committed believers. First of all, we ought to make time for God. That is a priority. Again, we've seen that over and over again in the Psalms. If the only time you spend with God is on Sunday morning, then you can't call yourself a committed Christian. You are not consumed with passion for the things of God. Secondly, are you investing financially in the work of the ministry? And you say, I know you always get around to bringing up money, and that's not my point. My point is simply that we invest, we spend money in that which is a priority in our lives. And so if the gospel genuinely is a priority, if our spiritual life or our soul, as we're calling it this morning, if our soul is a priority, then we're going to invest financially in the ministry of the soul. Likewise, if, if our soul is a priority, if we're fully committed to God, then we're going to invest our talents and time in the kingdom of God. 
Again, that's another way to show, to see where your priorities are. We're going to be spending time reading and thinking about God. What is it that you think about when you don't have to think about anything else? That is, when there is nothing else pressing, you have a few moments to yourself, what is it that genuinely seems to come to mind? And that's going to tell you a little bit about where your priorities are. If you want to know what it's like to pursue God as David is doing here in verse 1, maybe you need to think back to that time when you pursued a spouse. Remember back when you were dating? You, You saw someone that you were interested in and you desired them? and therefore you began to pursue them. And when you think back to that, it was not a casual pursuit. It might have been at the beginning, but eventually you got serious about pursuing them, and that was a priority in your life. The same thing ought to be true in our relationship with God. Do we seek him in the present by remembering what he has done for us in the past? That's what David is doing here. He's not living in the past, but he's remembering the past and therefore pursuing God in the presence with confidence. And so to illustrate his desire, David takes a lesson from that desert in which he is in. Like a dry and dreary or dusty land where there is no water. He thirsts for God, just like a man in a desert desires water. That's an all-consuming desire. Most of us do not know what it means to really be thirsty and not have something available to us. But if you're out there in the desert and you don't have a water source, you're not wondering about your finances, you're not worried about your career, you have an all-consuming passion for one thing, and that is water to satisfy your thirst, and that's what David compares his relationship to God with. Have you seen the the Mio commercial where the guy's out in the desert just like David is? It's all sand. The, The midday sun is beating down on him, and he's tired and thirsty and exhausted. And finally, he falls flat on his face there in the desert. But when he looks up, he sees a cooler in the distance. And so he makes his way over to the cooler. He opens it up, and it's filled with bottled water. But he's not happy about it. Because he doesn't have any Mio. You know what Mio is? It's those flavor packets, right? That you can squirt into water and therefore make it taste whatever flavor you want it to be. So this guy's not happy that there's water there because he has no Mio. Just then a helicopter comes over, drops him a little bottle of Mio, and now he's excited because he can have flavored water instead of just plain water. He must have been a lot like me. Plain water's just not my drink of choice. I force myself to drink it sometimes. But now that he's got the Mio, he doesn't even want to ride out of there in the helicopter. He says, no, I'm good now. And the reason that commercial is a bit comical is because it doesn't make sense. I mean, a man in the desert is going to want water. doesn't matter whether it's flavored or not because that's going to quench his thirst. And David compares that to his relationship with God. He says, I am like a man in the desert, dry and dusty, and I am all-consuming passion in my relationship with God. And so he thirsts. He thirsts for God. That's the analogy he uses there to speak of the urgency of his soul. Going back in his mind to the past where he has experienced the presence and satisfaction of God, something we'll get to in just a moment, during times in the tabernacle. And this past remembrance has him longing again for it more. I find it interesting in this particular psalm that he mentions his separation from the house of God 
as being what he is longing for and missing, even more so than his own son. Now, don't misunderstand me or, or overdo it here. David does grieve the betrayal and loss of his son. If you know that story, later when his son is killed, David grieves mightily over the death of Absalom. So much so that Joab has to come to him and say, you need to quit grieving him or you're going to lose the whole army. So I'm not saying he doesn't grieve his family, but I am saying he does grieve the fact that he is away from the worship of God. And I said it last week and I'll say it again this week. I hope that's one thing we learn out of this pandemic. That when we have been separated, not by choice, this is the first time in most of our lives where we have been separated from the corporate worship of God, not by choice, but because of the circumstances. Sometimes we separate ourselves by choice, that is we don't come. But this is the first time that we've been separated from the worship of God, not by choice. And I hope when this is all over, we will not take for granted the worshiping together as perhaps we've done in the past. So David is a seeking soul. And you see, especially in verse 1, how all-consuming that is. But secondly, the second use of the word soul, we find that in verse 5. And now he is a satisfied soul. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, don't miss the progression. These build upon one another. You cannot have the satisfied soul unless you first have the seeking soul. And that seeking soul must be seeking the right person, that is God, must be seeking that relationship with God. You cannot jump to the satisfaction without the seeking, and that's what we oftentimes want to do. But there is a progression here. And that's why he can say that a relationship with God is better than even life itself. He makes that statement in verse 3. We all agree that life is precious, so much so that we cling to it almost beyond anything else. We preserve our lives. There are stories of people willingly losing a limb in order to preserve their life. If you have the unfortunate uh, circumstance of being robbed, you will willingly give up your possessions. You will hand over your wallet or your car in order to preserve your life. People will pay a ransom. That's why people get kidnapped, because people will pay a ransom in order to get that person's life back and not lose it. And yet David says that the love of God, a relationship with God, is better than even life itself. Charles Spurgeon said that there is no desert in David's heart. There might be a desert around him, but there is no de desert in his heart. Now, we tend to have the opposite problem. Most of us will never face a physical desert. Now, we might go visit there just to see it, but most of us are never going to face a physical desert where we are thirsting for our lives. But we do have times of spiritual deserts, times when we feel dry and empty, times when we think back to sweeter moments, when we knew the presence and the person of God. And what we do during these desert experiences may define us. That is, do we then desire to find our satisfaction in God? Because God has satisfied us in the past and we can remember back to those times, do we then in those desert times that we may be currently in, do we desire to find our satisfaction there once again? David's response is to praise. 
He intends to continue praising God, even though his life is currently in a major struggle. Thus, he will bless God as long as he has breath. And that's not just a saying. Again, David is in a time of his life when he doesn't know how much longer he's going to have breath. He doesn't know if, the, if Absalom's army is going to overtake him and end his life. Lifting up hands of praise is a way of expressing praise and a willingness to receive and accept the blessings of God, whatever God sees fit to bestow. And then in verse 5, we have another illustration. His soul is satisfied with God, which is the focal point of this whole section. But now the comparison is with his physical appetite. He's already talked about the drink, the water. Now he's talking about food. And he's remembering back to those times as a king that he would have sat before great banquets, all of this food of all different varieties and as much quantity as anybody would want. Food enough to satisfy any appetite. The fat portions there were the best and richest food, which certainly would have tasted even better to someone who was famished. Now, I know we try to cut down on fat, but in these days, the fat was the, the choicest part. And so he, he's remembering back to those banquets. We might, we might think of a, a buffet. I don't know if buffets are still open because I try to avoid them because I know I eat too much when I go there. But you can think of a buffet where you can go back as, as often as you want, as many times as you want, and get as much as you want so that you leave satisfied, though if you're like me, you leave feeling bad about how much you did consume. And so David is using that as a comparison, and he's talking about the feast of God, our appetite for God. And what you'll discover is if you have this kind of appetite for the things of God, then your appetite for the things of the world will begin to diminish. But the opposite is also true. If our thoughts, if our desires, if our appetites are hung up on the things of this world, then it's little wonder we don't have the appetite for God that we see here in this psalm. David thinks about God often, again and again, even in the face of this family crisis. Now, at the time that David is writing this, the Hebrews divided the night into three watches. That's what he means when he talks about the night watches. Three watches of, of equal time. Later, they would adopt the Roman practice of four sections of the night. But he's saying, in the night watches, I meditate. We don't like to use that word sometimes because it's been taken over by New Age philosophy or, or New Age religion. And so we, we sort of steer clear of the word to meditate, but we shouldn't. The word meditate means to just think, to, to mull over, to chew over in our minds. And what we need is more deep thinking, not less. We need times of careful thought, not thought devoid of God's word, but thought infused with God's word. And so by the time we come to the end of this second section, the mouth that was dry and dusty as the psalm begins is now filled with praise because the seeking soul has found satisfaction in that which he seeks. And that leads us to our third use of the word soul. This one is found in verse 8. Again, there's a progression. Don't forget that. The seeking soul has become the satisfied soul so that now in verse 8, it is the secure soul. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. As David clings to God... He discovers that God upholds him so that he is secure. And this word cling 
has the idea of holding on, not loosely, but tenaciously, like a, like a marital relationship. I mean, the Bible says that we're to, to leave and cleave, that is, grasp on to our spouse. It's the, the word we see in the story of Ruth and Naomi, where that famous passage, she says, where, I, where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God, your people will be my people. That, that's clinging to. And that is what David says he does here with God. We instinctively hold on to that which is most important to us. And David understands that that which is most important, as we began this sermon, is his soul, the spiritual life. And so the last portion of this psalm is similar to some of the others we've looked at. David turns his attention to his enemies, his thoughts, his, his prayers are directed to those who are against him. Again, because of his relationship with God, he is confident that his enemies will eventually become, be overcome. He knows whose side he is on, and that is why he can be secure in the midst of all the uncertainty that is around him, which reminds us of our own context, doesn't it? We are not in the Judean wilderness, but we might say we are in a wasteland. We are in the midst of huge uncertainties, and we have been now for nearly six months, and none of us would have thought we'd have still been in this six months later. But the question is, are you secure even in the midst of all the uncertainties that are going on around us. 2020 has not changed where we find security. If you find yourself insecure in 2020, it is not because of the events surrounding you. It is because you have stopped seeking God, you're not finding your satisfaction in Him, and thus you are not secure. David finds his satisfaction in God who, in the midst of all of his frustrations, all of his disappointments, all of the danger, is still the same God, and therefore he finds security. Now, I realize it's relatively easy to be content with God when everything is going our way. But the question is, can we find that security and satisfaction even when betrayed by a family member, maybe betrayed by a, a church member, Maybe when we lose our job or, or nothing seems to be going our way, can we say with David that a relationship with God and the love that he has for us is better to us than even life itself? In fact, here is another reason why we face trials. Again, that we ask that question often. Why does God allow suffering for the Christian? And there are many answers, but here is another one of them. Because in the midst of our trials, the sincerity of our faith is tested. And do we come out of it with greater satisfaction because we've sought God in the midst of it? It's the parable of the soils. Jesus told that parable. There were four kinds of soil. The first kind was clearly not a believer. The last kind clearly was. But it's those two middle ones that we often get confused. And he tells in those four soils, those two middle ones, that they showed signs of life. But either the thorns choked out that life or the scorching sun wilted it away. Both of those are pictures of people who make a profession of faith in Christ and yet the trials of life make them lose whatever faith they had. It is that fourth soil that we are to be like. In the midst of our trials, do we continue to prosper in our faith? 
2020 might be rocking your world, but it certainly should not destroy your faith. Jesus said, if you drink this water, referring to the water in the well, you will thirst again. But if you drink the water I give you, that is a relationship with him, you will find satisfaction forever. Why then do we continually seek after lesser things, saying on the one hand that our soul is the most important part of our lives, and yet we're not actively seeking God, finding satisfaction in him, and therefore finding security? These are hard lessons to learn. But I want to encourage you in the midst of these trying times to do that very thing. And you will find that the water he gives will overflow forever. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the relationship that we have with you. And yet we must confess that so many times it is more casual than we would like to admit. We read David's urgency in this psalm. We see the illustrations that he shares with us to to show just how earnestly and eagerly and early he seeks you. And yet we have to admit that we do not have that same sense of urgency. Lord, I do pray that you would turn our hearts, minds, and eyes toward you. That we would early and earnestly seek you. Pandemic or no pandemic. That our thoughts would be on you. As we rise, as we go throughout our day, and even as we end the day, may our thoughts be toward you. And may we come to learn that we can only find satisfaction in you. And that's how we can have security in the midst of so much uncertainty. We thank you that we can say, Oh God, my God. And we pray it in the name of Jesus who made that possible. Amen. Let's stand and sing.